Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to light. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. And we have been doing this for more than 300 episodes, Tim. And we've been doing it without any corporate sponsors or advertisers to provide us with the flexibility to do this as a full-time podcasting job. And why, Mr. Houlihan, why do you think that is? Um, is it is it because we really just don't care about money? <laughs> no, we we definitely care about money, at least oh, yeah. at least to some degree, right? No, but when it comes to this show, when it comes to creating behavioral grooves every week, we do it because we love it. We we love the learning aspect. We love talking to really smart people, and we love sharing those great stories of behavioral science with our listeners. Then. I guess you might actually be able to say that we're creating a brand of being science communicators. Would would, would you agree with that, Kurt? Uh, absolutely. But I, I never thought of it in that way. I never thought I would say that. But yeah, that is very true. Okay. So here we are like communicating all this great content because we love it. So it's sort of, we're skipping over the fortune and getting right to the fame part, right? <laughs> um Okay, I don't know about that, but I guess that is uh, one way, one way you could you could put it. All right. Okay, well, I have a point here, actually. Okay. We know that we have lots of listeners, at least lots of people who download the podcast, like tens of thousands of people every month, and we'd like to hear from them. We'd like to see them following us on LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram. Actually, most of all, we'd just like to have a conversation with them, with you, the listeners. We'd like to have a conversation with you. Yeah, not now I see where you're going with this, Tim. I, I kind of a roundabout way of getting there, but I can <laughs> I can see that you're leading into the conversation uh, about this episode today because we're going to hear from our guest and he's going to talk about the benefits of branding and how to engage your customers. All right. You bet I am. But I would still be extra happy to know that if you're listening, that you'd actually take a moment to follow us on social media or and share a cool story that you think should be covered or tell us about a fantastic new study that you think should be aware of. Like all of that, just talk to us. Yeah. So so you're asking a lot of our listeners. Well, I, you're asking a lot, man. You know, they got to actually reach out to us. Come on. That's that's tough, right? I am. I am. But that's one of the lessons that we learned from our guest in this episode. And we can make that ask. Matt Johnson is a terrifically smart neuroscientist who's also an insightful author. His book, Branding That Means Business, was written with co-author Tess Misalazy, and it leverages brain science for marketing. And now you may recall that we featured Matt in episode 177 when his then co-author, Prince Guman, and he released their book, Blindsight. And we're excited to share this conversation with Matt about his latest writing effort. Yeah, we are. And branding means business is filled with terrific insights you won't get anywhere else, like how to think about your brand as a conversation rather than a statement. So you can ask your listeners to, to do things right. And how social media, how social media can help humanize your relationships with your customers. So again, listeners, please go out to social media, have a conversation with us. And one thing that I found extremely interesting, Tim, is, is that he said, and I quote, successful branding is when a consumer can see themselves reflected in the brand, that the brand understands them, unquote. So as I'm sitting here and thinking about behavioral grooves, I wonder if people can see themselves in our brand. Well, I hope so. I, I mean, that's what we're trying to do. Right. We're asking the questions with our guests that we think our listeners would ask if they had the opportunity to talk to them. We sit down and and groove on what we heard as if our listeners were in the room with us having a deep conversation. Right. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And I hope I hope that we're achieving it. Right. Yeah. yeah ag agreed. And I, I hope we are humanizing our relationship with our listeners as well. Yeah. And if you think that this episode is just about marketing and, and, and some of that, I, I just want to make sure that you know that there's lots of great gems of wisdom um, for our listeners, even those who are not marketers. And so 
in this conversation, we get insights into what connects people to social identity, to Harley Davidson and Red Bull, uh, how to communicate uh, inside of a company. It has some really great moments. It does. It does. So listeners, we encourage you to sit back and pick up your favorite branded drink. No knockoffs allowed. (laughs) Definitely not. And as we have fun and lively conversation with Matt Johnson. Matt Johnson, welcome back to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. It, it's, it's always fun to, to converse with you, whether it's on Twitter or on Zoom or whatever it is. And we're glad to have you here today. And of course, we're going to get started with a, maybe the most important speed round question ever. So I just want to let you tee it up that way. So who is the best Arsenal player of all time? Thierry Henry or Ian Wright? Ooh, I like this. I got to go Thierry Henry. I got to go Thierry Henry. I mean, okay. it was the uh, the era that I became an Arsenal fan. Thierry Henry wasn't actually the player that got me into Arsenal. It was Dennis Bergkamp, his uh, midfield <laughs> compatriot. Um, but yeah, I mean, of, of the two, I think, yeah, Thierry Henry is just the, the king, I think. And then, yeah. So how did you become an Arsenal fan? I mean, what right. was the, the it, it, it seems like for an American to kind of, you know, I mean, what, what was the impetus there? Yeah, yeah. So I should I should definitely say up front that I did not become an Arsenal fan this year when we finally are having a good season. I'm a long suffering <laughs> Arsenal fan going back to good. 1998. So that was, I think, the first World Cup when I was, geez, in my I was 12 or 13 at the time that I was really into the World Cup. And it was it was taking place in France. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I was just a huge fan of like the Dutch national team. I just loved their style of play. I, I grew up playing soccer and we kind of played in a Dutch style. It's called the Franz Hoek system. Oh. I loved the Dutch team. And of course, that was the era of Dennis Bergkamp. And he was just amazing. It was one of his best tournaments. And uh, then I sort of looked him up after the tournament. Oh, he plays in this team, Arsenal. And then that just became my team. And I've, I've loved him ever since. You know, the 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 things we fall in love with uh, by chance, right? It's just amazing those <laughs> like little things in our lives that bring about that, you know, massive components that we have. So truly fascinating. Absolutely. Fascinating. Okay. Second speed round question. Yes or no? Pumpkin spice latte. Yes. I am pro <laughs> pumpkin spice lattes. I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, sort of shared cultural knowledge and and sort of the the last bastion of American monoculture and love them or hate them everybody knows the pumpkin spice latte so I'm very pro pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> I don't know where to go with that honestly, but I'm but but I I I think it's a it's it is there's some wisdom in there and I I, I respect that. Okay, okay. So uh, third speed round question: What do cherry blossoms and kit kat have in common Ooh, yeah so this is in uh one of the book's chapters on uh co-creation of, of brand meaning one of my yeah. favorite cases of the book uh looking at really how brands can have a nice back and forth with consumers about how a product is is being interpreted so this is how kitkat really became one of the most successful candy bars in japan they had uh, sort of figured out that uh, KitKat bars were doing relatively flat overall in terms of, of sales volume throughout the year, but that each year they spiked uh, right around exam time. And they sort of investigated further and they didn't spike across the board instead of all of Japan. They spiked in a given region of Japan. And so they investigated further and they found that people in that specific region of Japan were giving each other KitKat bars right before exams as sort of a token of good luck. And it turned out that in that specific dialogue of Japanese, Kit Kat, and I'm not going to do the actual Japanese here, but meant something like good luck, or I wish you every good fortune. That's what the Japanese translation to English would be. And so with this in mind, Kit Kat really changed their entire strategy around Kit Kat in Japan. They uh, redid their packaging to feature cherry blossoms, which are uh, also sort of a symbol of, of good luck in Japan. Uh, they went away, probably diametrically, 
opposed to their sort of original brand strategy of KitKat, take a break with KitKat. Instead, they utilized KitKat as a, a, a gift to somebody in exam periods. It was the opposite of taking a break. And as a result, KitKat really took off in Japan at large. And now uh, something like 75% of all university students have KitKats throughout the year in their exams. It's become sort of a, a cultural mainstay. And it just talking about, you know, sort of happenstance and serendipity, you know, it was just happenstance that the language, you know, matched up there. But to KitKat's credit, they really sort of dug deep and they did the market research and they were really receptive to the way their product was being interpreted. So just goes to show sort of the flexibility that brands can, can exercise and, and the, the positive benefits that can accrue when they do. And then came green tea KitKat. Right. As, as, as if they weren't more closely aligned and, and not just in Japan, but everywhere. Yeah. 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 So I don't know exactly the, the market research stories there, but uh, yeah, they, they've tried a ton of different flavors, you know, just sort of capturing sort of regional tastes and things like that. And I think green tea overall has been one of the flavors to stick again, as you mentioned, not just in Japan, not just in East Asia, but as sort of a, a global iteration of the classic Kit Kat. Yeah. It, it's amazing. And you have lots of those really fascinating stories in the book and different pieces. But we have one last uh, speed round question. Should a brand be like a house or should it be like a home? <laughs> a brand ideally should be it should be a home. So yeah, definitely in, in one of the chapters we we dive into this idea of brand meaning and really we can think of, you know, sort of brand personality as being sort of like building a home. You have the foundation of your sort of brand strategy and what you represent. And you have your brand personality, which uh, is sort of the, the structure of the home and the walls. Um, but of course, you can't just have brand personality. And really the difference between brand personality and brand meaning is the same difference as having a house versus having a home. It's really this feeling of sentimentality, sort of the consumers or these, uh, these sort of people that live in the house sort of make it their own. And so along the lines of, of how KitKat executed on this in Japan, you have to really invite the consumer in, have them at times sort of make adjustments, have them see themselves in the brand and see themselves in the product. And it's really then where they're sort of cultivating what we call brand meaning. Well, and we are going to dig into that uh, in, uh, or later in our conversation. But frankly, Matt, we're just excited to have you here for the second time around talking about your second book, Branding That Means Business. And I'm just curious about what, what drew you into writing this book, at this time? So I think branding is, is really at a crossroads right now. Uh, so really in sort of mid 2000s on, there's been this incredible proliferation of technology. So if we really could put a date to that, that would be probably 2007, where all these, you know, really healthy tech platforms really took a big leap. So if you look at Amazon, they released the Kindle and really ate up market share within books. Uh, you look at Google, this is where they launched Gmail. You look at Apple, this is the first iPhone. You look at Facebook, this is when they go outside of, of college students. So 2007 is really when these sort of generally large tech companies really became sort of not just massive, massive tech companies, massively successful, but also really shaping the foundational features of the internet and how consumers experience the digital world. And essentially what that's meant is that there's a sort of concentration at the core of digital value and really almost everything that we can experience uh, in terms of what we deem valuable, especially if it's going through the internet, is mediated through one of these big four companies. And so what that's meant for brands is a huge commodifying factor. They no longer sort of own the consumer in terms of the consumer journey. Really much more of, of what's happening is being mediated by these companies, whether it's Amazon as sort of the guardian of, of e-commerce, you know, Google is sort of the, you know, the guardian of, of search and, and sort of paid advertising, you know, Facebook being the guardian. We'll, we'll talk about Facebook and Metaverse, and they've had a different, a different turn of events recently, but for a very long time, they're sort of the guardians of how uh, brands were seen in terms of segmented and targeted advertising that, that's gone on on the internet. And so all of this has been a real challenge for brands. And really, we've reached sort of a, a threshold effect where uh, unless you're excellent, unless you are a Nike, a Disney, a Lululemon, unless you're really sought out by the consumer, then you are knowing. So if you, you know, yell to your smart speaker, hey, order me some batteries, uh, Amazon's, of course, going to just default to the, the ones which Amazon wants to sell. Unless you specify, hey, I want Duracell, hey, I want Energizer, then there, there's so much taking place within this sort of centralized internet 
that uh, you're just going to get a, a sort of very commodified version of the product. You go on Spotify, you can listen to any songs that have ever written. Consumers are, are sort of spoiled to a large extent. And so really to stand out above the noise, really to be actively sought out, the brand has to go above simple product value. And so I think an approach in this book is really this how how the, the central question was how can brands rise to this modern challenge and really the broad answer if we were to summarize it with a single sort of you know pithy line would be they really need to harness the fundamentals of human nature that brands really matter when and only when they matter to consumers and this is fundamentally a a question of human connection. And really the book sort of lays out the general sort of considerations and strategies and tactics all sort of centered around uh, sort of human-based considerations. Yeah. You talked about this a little bit earlier in, in one of the, the speed round questions, but you talked about brand personality and brand meaning. And then you, there's, uh, you also bring up brand purpose within the book. Can you talk a little bit, explain for our listeners what that actually is? So what is brand personality compared to brand meaning? And how does that, how do both of those differ than brand purpose? And kind of bringing that piece into this. Totally. I feel like there could be a, a textbook, not just on branding, but on like branding vocabulary. I feel like there's, <laughs> you put like brand X and X could mean, you know, brand personality, brand strategy, brand positioning, brand purpose. You know, there's so many sort of, you know, very small subtleties. There's a lot of uh, similarity and overlap between a lot of them as well. So I think that sort of the organizing term there is brand strategy. And really at the core of, of brand strategy is, uh, two things. So at, at the core of brand strategy is sort of what we deliver and who we deliver it for. So unless you're Amazon, unless you're Alibaba, uh, you're not all things to all people. You're something specific to a specific target market. You can have several target markets, but you need to sort of narrow that down, narrow down the value exchange. And then in enabling this value exchange, uh, the brand has sort of a set of characteristics some of which really mirror human-based characteristics. And so when we think about Apple, we think sort of sleek and smart and minimalist and innovative. You think about Nike, you think about incredible athletic prowess and boldness and dream big. These are all very sort of human personality characteristics. So the set of, of characteristics that comes to be associated with the brand is the brand personality. And then the next step beyond that is when these brand personality characteristics become meaningful and they become sort of integrated into the minds and lives of consumers. And really that's when we get to brand meaning. The last uh, terminology uh, was the one you asked specifically about, which was brand purpose. And we know from social psychology that uh, human beings were naturally very sensitive to intentionality. So imagine, you know, somebody steps on your foot. Imagine, you know, scenario one, they did it on purpose. Let's say Kurt, like Tim, you know, steps on your, your foot. He's like, oh, sorry, sorry, buddy. I didn't mean to, you know, uh, it was it was a mistake. And, uh, you know, it's not going to hurt very bad. But imagine, uh, you know, somebody comes up and they step on your foot on purpose. So it's the same sort of physical response happening. But studies have revealed that you'll actually experience it as being much more painful. So we're really sensitive to intentionality. And the same is true with how we sort of perceive the intentions of the brand. Of course, implicitly, we all understand living in a capitalist society that the brand is a tool of the company. The company needs to make money for its shareholders, et cetera. So the brand does have that as its general sort of money-making goals, but it also uh, sort of can, can purport itself at least to have a higher order purpose as well. So we're not just about you know selling shoes to people. We're about enabling people to achieve their dreams, which would be you know something along the lines of sort of Nike's purpose. Or you know with Google, it's not just we have all these great tools. You can you know go on Google Maps and figure out where you're going and search for things. But we're going to create a better world through technology. That's our purpose. That's our ethos as a brand, as an organization. Uh, and so that's where brand purpose comes in. So we have lots of brands that that serve businesses. You you I mean you you argue that. Almost any brand can serve a business, but very few actually make that connection. Can you could you talk a little bit about why do you think some brands are so much better at connecting with people at actually having this this intentionality and and conveying that? What what makes them different? So I think one one thing that's really interesting to point out here is that the none of the terms that we talked about uh, before when it comes to brand purpose, intentionality, brand personality. Uh, none of these can be unilaterally dictated. 
Mm-hmm. So the brand can't sort of dictate to the consumer, hey, you know, these characteristics that we're you know, constructing a brand around, these are valuable to you. So the brand is a, a social convention. And the value of those conventions is really determined by the consumers. It's determined by the market. Nike is a great brand because the unique constellation of attributes that has coalesced to create Nike is valued by the market. If these go away, if the, if the market ceases to value athletic excellence and, and sort of aspirational uh, dreaming, then the brand essentially loses its ability to capture the hearts and minds of the audience. And in fact, we do see this with certain brands. Um, you guys are both from the Midwest. So you can be very familiar with this brand, Harley Davidson, uh, where it's really constructed a very strong, very distinct brand personality around being the American rebel. You have all these brand identifiers and brand reference with uh, the Hells Angels and the Out on the Open Road and Jack Kerouac and, and all of that, that sort of American ethos. And that's very appealing to a certain target demographic in the U.S. And it's historically been very appealing to a certain target demographic in the U.S. What they're finding now, last 15 years or so, is that that generation, sadly, is starting to die out. That the sort of boomer generation that finds these ideals and finds these characteristics so appealing uh, is uh, getting smaller and smaller. And they have to get young. And younger generations don't necessarily resonate with that same brand image. So just because you sort of establish brand meaning doesn't mean that you win. There's no sort of award ceremony that sort of, you know, tacks on the gold medal that you are the best brand forever and for always. What determines if you're a great brand is if your values and your attributes and and your characteristics resonate with your target market at that time. And if sentiments shift, then uh, you need to shift along with them. So uh, yeah, brands are able to sort of you know, have their their fingers on the pulse of what the market is appreciating, is able to, in some instances, and Apple is the great example of this, be sort of market driving forces here. So we're not just going to sit back and be receptive and deliver on what the market wants. We're actually going to come from the position of sort of aspirational elitism, and we're actually going to dictate what is cool and what should uh, be desired in the market. Uh, So that's sort of a, a different element when it comes to sort of market orientation as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk in the book to uh, to this point a bit about Red Bull, right? And how Red Bull had, you know, they started off again with a very distinct thing, but then they it, it shifted. They they modified that within just a little bit, but it expanded their market. And and again, if they wouldn't have done that, it, who knows what they did? And then you're you're comparing it also to White Claw, which you know is has done really really well, but again. How sustainable is that? I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about kind of that Red Bull journey, because I thought that was fascinating, particularly as it pertains to, you know, the story that you just told about Harley Davidson. Yeah, Red Bull's a great, great example because they're a brand which is uh, really subsistent almost entirely on its incredible brand perception. So from the very beginning, Red Bull had a very distinct and very narrow brand personality. Uh, It's extreme. Like you can summarize it in in a single word, extreme. And when they first started out as a company, their target market was very narrow as well. You wanted a target market that appreciated that brand personality, and that was extreme athletes. They sponsored base jumpers. They were literally like the the sports drink for these people. Like it was a very <laughs> functional drink. You had base jumpers, you had people doing parkour, all sorts of crazy things, and that was their drink. And then of course, you know, it's a relatively niche market. They really captured that market. Uh, they really needed to expand. So they went to sort of a broader conception of extreme athletes. They went and sponsored the X Games. Then they sort of expanded beyond that, and they went into sports. They they bought uh, Red Bull uh, Salzburg, Red Bull FC, or sorry, F- uh, FC Salzburg and Red Bull FC. Uh, they went beyond that. They sponsored Felix Bumgarner to jump from space coming down to Earth. And so slowly, they've, they've sort of expanded their appeal, expanded their target market, but they stayed, to their credit, very true to their brand personality. And so they've done things like host the Red Bull Music Festival, which you think music, you think extreme sports, there's very little in common, but this is done through the lens of Red Bull's brand personality. And so they have like opera singers and hip hop artists and even folk stars, each of which is sort of considered to be extreme within their genre and category. And so now, sort of coming sort of full spectrum, you have Red Bull appealing to office workers. And you think, 
office workers, what could be more lame than that? What could be more <laughs> a, you know, uh, and the, take the note, antithesis. Tim, take note. I, yeah, thanks, thanks, more thanks. lame than office workers. Didn't mean to trigger anybody on the, yeah. on the show right now. But uh, yeah, what could be the, the more sort of antithesis target market to an extreme drink than Red Bull? But they've done it again in a way that stayed very true to their brand personalities. So you'll see ads like, hey, you've got a PowerPoint presentation, you know, knock it out of the park. Red Bull gives you wings. Like it's for the extreme and everybody. And they've done a really good job of sort of incrementally through sort of concentric circles, growing out that brand personality by, by, by again, sort of staying true to sort of their, their core identity there. Yeah, I, I, that's really well said. I'm, I thank you for, for approaching it that, that way. And, and we learn right from these great examples about the complexities of personality and through all of these different things which makes bigger companies seem to have the ability to expand their brand and really bring that personality to it, maybe better than smaller brands, uh, right? Because they can do a soccer team uh, in, in Europe and they can do a music festival and they can do all kinds of things like that. And still, it just amazes me as Rory Sutherland, you know, basically a product that tastes like gasoline. I, 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 you know, that's just my editorial on that. <laughs> okay. But, but I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that, that they do have that, that, that personality. Um, I wanted to also, uh, one of the things that was on, on my mind is, and we, we teed this up a little bit before, but you love neuroscience. Like you love the science behind all the application here, but you have, you've written two books on marketing. Which do you love more? Do you love neuroscience more? Or do you love marketing more? Oh man, I'm going to try to take the uh, the diplomatic the diplomatic <laughs> response there and say that I, I love all things at the intersection of of neuroscience and marketing. So I love you know the sort of the the, the confluence of of the two. I do think that especially with marketing, it, it's very difficult, especially in a B two C environment, to really understand it without understanding neuroscience. So I think mm. neuroscience is present in marketing, whether or not the marketer realizes it or yeah. not. Yeah, so there it is. If, if yeah. a consumer responds to a given ad or a given campaign or resonates with a given brand strategy, all of that is is fundamentally predicated on changes in the constellation of neural activity, uh, which correspond to these emotional and behavioral outputs. And when it comes to the way marketers have come to conceive these things, and and every marketer and every practitioner is going to have hypotheses. They're going to have mental models. They're going to have uh, sort of folk psychological beliefs about what's going to resonate with consumers and whether they sort of convey those in sort of folk psychological uh, statements and ideas and adages or whether they, you know, try and see it through the lens of neuroscience. Either way, what they're doing is going to be predicated on neural responses and physiological responses ultimately. So I think sort of my, my perspective as a neuroscientist is sort of peeling back these hypotheses, which are sometimes, you know, incredibly spot on. I think great marketers, especially great creatives, have really intuited a lot of the fundamental uh, sort of principles, which a neuroscientist would sort of understand from a much more sort of scientific and top-down approach. But uh, for me, it's really about sort of building that connection and really sort of seeing the world of, of marketing through neuroscience. Yeah, I, I see the same thing inside organizations as you're thinking about just the way that they're approaching employee engagement and other things is like, there's some natural instinct that we know they may not know the science, the behavioral science, the neuroscience behind it, but they do it instinctively. And it's very interesting. We had interviewed Matthew Wilcox. I think it was, I forget what episode it was. Uh, he was the ago. author of the business of choice marketing to consumer instincts. And in that he advocated for changing the marketing word consumer to chooser. And in your book, you suggest maybe changing it to humans. And so I, I think there's some correlation there. But why, why do we think to need to steer away from this word consumer in marketing? What is the why is that seems like a pain point for many people that we've we've talked to? It's dehumanizing. I think that's sort of the, the fundamental idea that I think, you know, marketers and not all marketers, of course, but I think sort of traditionally, the idea is that, you know, we're the marketers, we're the humans, and we're going to devise, you know, a set of campaigns or, or a set of sort of advertising tactics to drive behavior on these consumers. And what do consumers like? Consumers like, you know, baby faces. They like highly salient visual imagery. They like this, this, and this. There's all these sort of, 
you know, general sort of features. For example, just looking at sort of visual saliency as sort of one example, and these are all true. That's all based on, you know, good, you know, cumulative data. But fundamentally, you know, we're talking about human beings here, which are not just in the business of making decisions, but they have a whole portfolio of interests and incentives. And they are complex and multifaceted and messy and contradictory and hypocritical. Uh, we humans really don't lend ourselves to any, you know, sort of succinct categorization or, or sort of succinct description, especially when you put sort of culture in the mix, which is sort of the uh, sort of the soup that effectively we're all sort of swimming in uh, when it comes to ultimately making a decision and sort of landing on a given path. So I think when uh, when, when the use, the word consumer is used and when it's sort of seen as you know, these are these are going to be the automatons, you know, sort of dangling probabilistically, at least from our, our campaign efforts. Uh, then I think uh, it, it's a little bit too sort of simple and a little bit too sort of box and arrow. And I think a little bit more of sort of the, the messiness of, of sort of human enterprise needs to be considered there. Yeah, I love yeah. the messiness part. Right. So, yeah, that that is cool. You you brought up a, another interesting concept about brands needing to relinquish some degree of control in the communication with with the people who are buying them. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit, especially with with regard to what does it look like inside of a company to actually re relinquish some of your communication control? You know, I think that that's going to I think that, you know, it's lovely in that it's so charged. You know, it's a it's a vivid idea. Right. But but you have some very practical ideas about that. Yeah, so I think that uh, long gone are the days of, of really being able to sort of formally dictate brand image. I think you know, if we go back to sort of mass market communication channels of like the 60s and 70s, you know, everybody was watching Walter Cronkite, you know, 6 p.m. and everybody got the news from the same place and everybody got the few you know, channels. And then you had, you know, print magazines. And if you were Campbell Soup or Coca-Cola, you know, you can effectively tell consumers, like, this is what we stand for. These are the products we sell. Like, this is our brand personality. Now you get it. And we don't have the, the communication landscape has totally fragmented. As we described in the book, Walter Cronkite has split into a million pieces. Everybody's getting their news from different places. Everything's mediated through uh, different technological interfaces. And uh, as a result, brands really can't dictate their brand image. And so more and more, brand image isn't what the brand tells its consumers it is. The brand image is what consumers tell each other it is. And so the line between brand image and consumer perception is getting much more porous and much more sort of free-flowing and back and forth than, than ever before. And so I think classically, brand managers have sort of thought of themselves as sort of the, the guardians of a brand image. But there, there necessarily is going to be a lot of conversations that are happening outside of the brand's control. So there's essentially you know, two choices that the brand manager has. So one, they can sort of be the, the ostrich in the sand and think, okay, we're just gonna you know, ignore these conversations that are, are happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, these are these conversations that are happening. We're just going to continue on with our campaigns. Maybe we're going to pull, you know, ourselves away from social media. So we're not dragged into these Twitter fights and comments on Instagram. We're just going to remove ourselves. And then these conversations about our brand are going to happen without us. And we're not going to have, you know, we're not going to be privy to them. We can't influence on them in any way. The other option is to take a much more sort of free flowing approach and accept the fact that while we can't dictate brand image, we can help to get into the conversation that ultimately helps generate and maintain and cultivate the brand image. So we're going to be active in terms of sort of understanding how consumers are talking about the brand. We may inject ourselves into the conversation. We may uh, sort of cultivate campaigns and, and communication strategy that sort of guide and drive conversation. So we're having this conversation in uh, December 2022. The big campaign out right now is, of course, Spotify Wrap, which is one of the best, in my opinion, one of the best campaigns out there. You look at sort of digitally native brands, they all suffer from the same fate that on a digital platform, everyone's having a different experience and it's really damaging to the brand to lose sort of a sense of sort of coherence. Spotify, I think, has, has sort of flipped that on their head. They think, you know, everyone has a slightly different experience on Spotify. That's an expression of our incredible diversity. Let's share our quirks and our weirdness and our musical taste. We'll throw it up on social media. We'll have conversations about it. It's a great example of a brand that uses content strategy, uses communication strategy to cultivate a conversation that puts the brand and the brand image really at the center of that. So 
it's a difficult period for brands that they sort of can't sit back and sort of dictate brand damage the same way they could in, in you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. We can't be, you know, mournful for those days. Those days are long over. So the brand, I think, really needs to, to get more engaged in these conversations to be able to help sort of guide these conversations. How does that tie in? You talk a lot about uh, social identity and self-identity as part of this brand process of going through this and having those conversations. And as you talked about just the Spotify piece and you're talking about, you know, the rap that they do, that that plays, at least to me, feels like it's very self-identified. You know, it's like, oh, this is me this past year. And it plays out that, all right, now I'm seeing myself represented in the Spotify songs that I played most. And and so I have now come to identify my own being with this brand that they have. And But you also bring in the social identity and the kind of groups and tribes and teams and some of those. So how does all of this all connect and play together? So I think one of the, the core tenets of brand meaning and one of the, the telltale signs that a brand has achieved brand meaning is the consumers describe exactly what you just described, that you're able to see yourself in the brand. Another reason why I think Spotify Rap is just a, a stellar campaign. It lets consumers sort of see themselves reflected in the brand. They feel like the brand sort of understands them. That's sort of my brand, essentially. And one way in which brands can sort of go about trying to achieve that is they can tap into social identity. That, of course, as we discussed earlier, you know, humans are complex, multifaceted, contradictory creatures. But we are fundamentally social creatures and we are fundamentally tribal creatures as well. We identify with some groups at the expense of others. We all have uh, groups that we sort of feel, you know, more camaraderie with. We talked about Arsenal FC. I, that's sort of a core sort of sliver of my, my social identity is I'm a, I'm a gooner. I'm an Arsenal fan. That's, you know, <laughs> that's let looms large in my portfolio of interests. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, but people have, you know, many different things that comprise their, their social identity. So this could be, you know, I'm a, a father, I'm a mother, I'm a, a blue collar worker, I'm a, a Midwesterner. There's going to be many, many different things that we sort of identify with. And some brands can sort of almost take a shortcut to brand meaning is that they establish in their brand strategy a link between the brand personality and sort of the core social identity of the target market. So there's some sort of really, I think, sort of unsuccessful and lowbrow examples of this. So uh, BIC, uh, for example, they, they, they famously launched the BIC pen for women, uh, claiming that this was sort of, you know, tapping into social identity and BIC would sort of see themselves represented in the brain, uh, represented in the brand through this product. I think it was very poorly conceived and, and had a lot of sort of sexist undertones that, you know, women need a different kind of pen than men, like as if, you know, the hands of females work differently. It was, it was like pink and it was, yeah, it was like very, you know, playing on like very stereotyped gender norms. Um, but other brands are able to sort of pull this off with, uh, with much greater success. I think the example of, of Red Bull is a great one that really plays in the social identity that you feel, especially very early on in Red Bull, that like, yes, I'm an extreme person. I'm an extreme, you know, athlete. I'm an extreme sort of concert goer, a club goer. And therefore that that's, you know, a substantial sliver of my social identity. And I can see myself vis-a-vis this, this, uh, this identity that are reflected in that brand. So yeah, it's definitely sort of a way in which brands can sort of cultivate uh, brand meaning. With that, you talk on in the book too, kind of in the last chapters about you know social uh, activism that companies take, and 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 again uh, to this point of kind of that identity, it can be a very scary thing, I think, for many brands, and yet we see some brands pulling it off very effectively. And really solidifying that relationship with the the segment of the, the the market that they want, and others maybe not doing it as well. How do you see that playing out? And where is, is that a growing thing? Do you think again? I'm just looking at the social world that we live in, and it seems like we are becoming um, more tribal, right? We we tend to be separating more from a, just a social perspective. So do brands need to follow that or can we have the overarching brand? I mean, can can Coca-Cola, st- you know, not be a Coca-Cola red or Coca-Cola blue? Can they just be Coca-Cola and and how we do this, you know? It's a, it's a great question and one that, uh, that that keeps up at night a lot of brand managers who are wondering this exact thing. 
as you just mentioned, social identity can trespass very quickly and very efficiently into political identity. And if you slip into political identity, we slip into tribalism very quickly as well. So I'm not just pro-extreme, I'm anti- I don't know, office worker. I'm anti-banker. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Duh. So, of course, you know, when it comes to, to politics, um, yeah, it, it's very part and parcel, especially where we're in sort of unprecedented levels of, of political uh, polarization right now. And it's all too easy that if you strongly identify as a, you know, a progressive, you're very anti-conservative and, and vice versa. And so a lot of brands do feel that pressure. If they have a, uh, a target market, that is primarily progressive, for example, the natural move to align with that social identity is to gear the brand in a way that appeals more to progressives. And one way to do that is say, you know, this is who we are and this is, you know, who we're for. And then we are sort of by definition then not for this other group. So of course, the classic example when it comes to brand activism, Nike, Colin Kaepernick, a very controversial figure, especially at the time, really endeared the Nike brand to progressive America at the expense of conservative America. Nike was, was very, very careful about their calculations. They calculated ahead of time, that given the purchasing power, the outsized purchasing power of, of progressive America, that people were going to buy more shoes than Burnham. And that was essentially, you know, bore out in terms of, of stock price and revenue and sales and, and really everything else. Uh, we do have examples of, of brands on the conservative side doing something very similar. So when we think of political activism, we do think about sort of progressive brands diving into these political issues, uh, but that's not always the case. There are a few relatively mainstream brands that take a conservative approach. So Chick-fil-A would be sort of the classic example there, where they've said that, you know, we, we have these views on uh, gay rights and these views on, on marriage equality. This is where we stand. We take a very sort of conservative perspective like that. And this is who we are. This is what we stand for. And this is effectively who we are as a brand and who we are for. That's core to our brand strategy. And they've suffered a lot of flack from progressive America, but at the same time, a, a, a sort of endearment to conservative America. So generally speaking, sort of as a, a very general strategy, this goes to sort of your, your last question, you know, can't brands just stay neutral? We really have to have, you know, red Coke, blue Coke, or we can, do we just have Coke? And I think that's really the hope that actually a lot of Americans have. There's just some fantastic research that came out by Christine Mormon showing that, yes, of course, it's great to see my political values you know, represented by a given brand. But what I really want is a brand that brings people together. What I'm really concerned about as an American is the fact that we're so fractured. And every other week we're hearing about possible civil wars and, and you know crazy sort of things happening. What I really want a brand is a brand to bring people together. That's a much more difficult thing to do. But ultimately, sort of on the very high list of, of aspirations that the consumers have for the brands that they frequent. So it'd be a very sort of long game to play there. But I do think there, there's strategic opportunity in sort of going for the middle and really trying to, you know, not be so hyperpolarizing in one strategy. So what do brand managers need to do? Uh, I mean, with with all this, Matt, uh, there's uh, we've we've talked about sort of the aspirational side of this. There's a lot of things that really great brands do. What should brand managers be thinking about? What what are the what are the ways that they can activate on this idea that they can actually, you know, um, get empowered and and do more to to bring this to life? What I think when it comes to activism, I think I think it had its moment. I think especially in 2020. I mean, you guys are both you know from from Minneapolis. You guys were, were very much sort of in your, your backyards there in terms of what was happening that summer and, and the calls for social justice. I think a lot of brands, as a result of, of what was happening uh, that summer and the months that that followed, felt a lot of pressure from consumers to tell them tell consumers, where do you stand on these issues? And a lot of brands rose to that challenge or did not rise to that challenge in, in various ways. Um, but I think long term, looking sort of two years removed from that, the evidence is is really there that consumers don't buy on their values. They don't buy on their values nearly as much as brands would hope. That if you look at at survey data, you know, you ask a consumer, hey, would you be more likely to buy, you know, this pair of shoes at this price from a progressive brand or a conservative brand? People who are progressive say, yeah, I'd love it if they were a progressive brand. Yes, I would pay 10% more. 
when you look at behavior in the real world, the real world's messy. You're competing on price. There's convenience. If you're going shopping and physical retail, your kids are screaming at you. You're stressed. You're using all this sort of heuristics and you're not acting on your values. This is the classic sort of intention action gap, which I know you guys know all too well. And uh, this has really plagued the, the research here. Despite that, there's this sort of ongoing persistent belief that we need to align our values in sort of every single way, despite the ongoing observation that even for very strongly held beliefs like sustainability, consumers don't shop on their values. They just don't. Um, and when they do, it tends to be very sort of high-end, uh, very sort of elite, luxurious consumers, which have the uh, sort of the mental bandwidth and the price sensitivity or price elasticity, that is, uh, to be able to sort of execute on these values. For the median American household, it doesn't make a difference. The cheapest, most efficient product is generally speaking the one that's going to be bought regardless of, of what the political affiliations are. So at a sort of on the ground level, it's not moving the needle. What it is doing is it is polarizing the American demographic into thinking that, hey, if this person is wearing Nikes, they must have these views. And if this person's eating Chick-fil-A, they must have these views. Therefore, they're my enemy. These are my in-group. That's my out-group. And uh, I think you guys have had, had Javon Bobble on the, the podcast before. He wrote a fantastic book about this, The Power of Us. His, his own evidence from NYU really suggests that our own perceptions of the out-group tend to be very, very distorted. And the median out-group member, in terms of their viewpoints, aren't nearly as extreme <laughs> as we think they are. And all of the signaling that's going on with uh, with brands in terms of political affiliations, I think, is is galvanizing in a negative way the perceptions of polarization. So, I am uh, I'm very sort of bearish on uh, on activism, sort of long term. I think it sort of had its moment, and now I think brand managers are sort of looking for ways to sort of yes, be true to who we are, yes, make our consumers feel comfortable, uh, but also just try and be as many things as we can to as many, so as large a swath of the American demographic as possible. Yeah. Matt, do you think there's something there, uh, again, that it isn't necessarily about the activism itself, but it is the, the idea of, you, you talk about this, if brands don't have this meaning and, and, and all these things, it's just noise, right? And so and there's a lot of noise out there. And so is is one of those things of breaking some social norms and, and kind of doing some of these things that are going to garner, you know, attention, uh, are, they, are they plays in some instances, and is this a good thing in your mind, uh, to, to kind of break through that noise? Totally. I think it is a challenge for all brands in, in the era of, of sort of the fragmented media landscape to really rise above and rise above the chatter and rise above the geopolitical news that, that's coming to us and, and really stand out. And one, you know, I think very easy ways to be controversial or to put something out there and court controversy and then have a debate about it and then let public opinion decide. So we saw, you know, the, the most recent example, of course, is BrewDog, the, you know, the, the, uh, the British uh, uh, beer company. That originally said, yes, we're an anti, I don't know if you guys heard about this or were following this, but yeah, they, they essentially said, yeah, we're the, the anti World Cup beer sponsor. We're not going to, you know, we don't support the World Cup because of the, the poor treatment of uh, Qataris and their stances on uh, homosexuality and gender. Wow. Um, we're not going to support it. And that was the statement that they made. They had a campaign that was sort of rolled out that seemed to support that. It got some attention. There was some articles, there was some buzz about it, but then the, journalists you know, looked a little bit deeper into it and they found out that BrewDog was still going to show you know world cup games in the breweries and they were still selling beer <laughs> mm. to qatar through a third party which by oh. definition if you're dealing with qatar has to go through a, a centralized sort of government run agency so it goes into the very belly of the beast that uh the brew dog oh. you know publicly espoused all these negative attitudes about so now there's a sort of brand hypocrisy going back and forth and there's even more buzz whether or not this is sort of good for the brand long term, that's sort of another question. It goes back to this sort of, you know, big debate in the field. Do you want to sort of optimize for performance marketing and boosting sales and revenue and awareness? Or do you want to build a, a very long term project of sort of building a sort of beloved, endeared brand, in which case you don't need to utilize a lot of these sort of cheap performance marketing tactics? So. Yes, it can be effective, especially in the short term. Whether or not it's effective in the long term, I think, is, is still an open question. 
Well, this this aligns so much, uh, I, I, and I love the way that you write about this. That this so much aligns with Susan Sutcher's approach of that that companies as brands need to align behind uh, their beliefs and their values, and they need to, to choose these things. And um, when I when you when I think about this Qatari example of the the anti World Cup brand, I think it's a big muff if you if you if you break that is how it feels to me. But I guess we'll see what the market bears. Matt, you and I have exchanged a lot uh, over over Twitter. Uh, we've uh, exchanged a lot of ideas on music, and I'm I'm wondering if you ended up spending a year on a desert island, what two musical artists would you take with you? You could take the whole catalog. You wouldn't be limited to just one song, but not, but not bringing music- the person along. You, yeah, you would just only right. get there. You, you only get their music. It's not like hey, I'm- you couldn't bring Beethoven, but you could. I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm priming you on that. I didn't yeah. mean to do that. But what two musical artists catalogs would you take with you? Oh, that's a good question. So I have, I have one very boring answer that probably like ninety percent of people would pick, and then I have very one very like risque unique answer. And I think with those combined, I'd have a, a, enough sort of musical diversity to last however long I'm on that island. Is, so, is Barry Manilow one of them? <laughs> I guess the office get worker of musicians. Isn't <laughs> yeah, that yeah. what you would say? There you go. Uh, so the boring one, I, I got to take the Beatles. I got to take the Beatles. Like every once yeah. in a while, you meet sort of a hipster and they're like, oh, the Beatles are overrated. And it's like, it's such a, you know, a distinctive, terrible, you know, take. And I mean, it's just like, they're an incredible band, incredible portfolio, incredible catalog. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, I, I'll never get sick of listening to the Beatles. The next would be a classical musical composer by the name of Pierre Boulez. I don't know if you guys know him. So my dad is a, a jazz musician. He's into sort of, you know, experimental classical music. And Pierre Boulez was a, a classical composer from the 70s. And you guys are music nerds. So you'll get this. He was very famous for experimenting around what he called atonal music where there was never any sort of place in the music where it's sort of you find your sort of range on the scale or even which scale you're in. And every note that's played is essentially orthogonal and completely random with respect to the ones that preceded it. And so it's this weird sort of like almost uncomfortable, uh, you know, always on your toes, you know, sort of music. And I, I listen to it sometimes when I'm trying to like, you know, create new ideas or get into my sort of creative wow. uh, mind a little bit wow. because it's just very sort of jarring. That's the best sort of word to describe. It really doesn't fit any specific mood. It's sort of mood independent. So I think with the Beatles, very classic, you know, standard, very easy to listen to, great. And then Pierre Boulez for, you know, whatever creative needs I have on this island, I guess. Yeah, he followed on the heels of the of the dodecaphonic work when when it was exploring twelve tones versus just you know whatever the 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 triad or or the pentatonic tones within a particular key and um, and it, it I mean he just uh, he absolutely is is kind of mind bending yeah absolutely he is he is he's totally unique and like yeah. unlike you know anything that I've, I've ever heard before like I feel like especially modern music now I can listen to rock music I can. You know, I can hear elements of the Beatles. I can hear elements of, of you know, 70s rock. But you put on some Pierre Belez and it's just like totally different. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's it's complete. It's one of one, essentially. You know, it was something I find in this uh, when we when we ask this conversation, we are always it's it's so perfect, like how lovely and human we all are when we're anticipating going to the desert island. We're variety seeking. You know, it's it's a jazz artist and a classical artist, or it's a rock artist and a classical artist. Like it's it's not you know Barry Manilow and Stevie Nicks. You know, it's it, it's a it's a really <laughs> wide spectrum. And um, those, those seem very those. different to me. I don't know well, what you get. You know, I, I personally, I'm like, oh, they're very two different. Yeah. Well, that's true. How how about you know I don't know Stevie Nicks and and the late Christy McVie. She just passed away. So how about that for being similar? Anyway, uh, Matt Johnson, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's, it's really great. Congratulations on the new book. And, uh, and thanks for being a guest again on behavioral grooves. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Matt, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our highly branded brains. I love that. I love love that. that. 
I do. Why do you love that? I mean, that I was a that. simple one. It's branding. It's brain oh. to brains. You know. I I I think that we um we don't think about uh this, the branding that goes along with our brains. We don't think mm. about the branding that goes along with who we are as individuals. And we have you. I mean, you of any anybody in my life has been a huge advocate of self, not just self image, but self schemas. And that's kind of like brand. But how do we how does that brand get manifested in relationship with others? Yeah. I that, thought you were meaning branding, like taking that like hot iron and just branding our brains with it. And just um, like, oh, no, that's that that's sizzle. for my that would be from my childhood, actually, <laughs> growing up on a farm. No, no, not that. Um, not that kind of right. No, but it, 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 in all seriousness, I think you are absolutely correct. Is that we we think about branding from an organizational perspective, um, but really, you can take the lessons from branding, and it's all about how we interact with others and how others perceive us and how. Um, the image that we're portraying out there and in this world of, you know, influencers and the influence that people have, I think it's even more apparent that some of these lessons uh, just kind of can make sense in your everyday life, not just in the organizational part, even though the organizational part, they're really important as well. I think you brought this up in the introduction, Kurt, this comment that Matt made in the book. He writes that uh, successful branding is when a customer can see themselves reflected in the brand. That's yeah. a relationship thing, right? It that, is. It really, no, that you are absolutely right. Yeah. It, it's totally a relationship thing. So uh, that's why it. when you said our branding brains, it's like we have this identity about ourselves, but we also, that identity gets created and co-created in our relationships. Yeah. So why not take that idea and bring it into our corporate brands as well? It's not a one-sided thing. It's not a unilateral approach. Yeah. Uh, big brands like, like Apple or Red Bull or Harley-Davidson continue to co-create their brands with their customers. And, and yeah. I think that that's where the wisdom is in this. Well, one of the things that, that Matt talked about both in the book and, and with us is this idea that branding is at a crossroads. And I think it's been at a crossroads for a long time, but I think it's been really apparent since the social media takeoff from 2010, right? Kind of when when the like button or whatever was introduced on Twitter yeah. and all those other aspects that this idea that the that conversation is now actually a conversation and that the brand, that the company doesn't really own that brand anymore, that marketing as much as they would like to be able to control it, uh, they put stuff out there. And once it's out there, they can maybe influence it, but they no longer own it. Uh, that's a really good point that uh, in the world of social media, you can't control everything. And mm -hmm. brands never could control everything. But I think that they have had kind of a. Uh, I don't know, a misconception that, you know, in the 1950s or 60s, when IBM said, this is our new product and this is our brand and this is how we're making it, that I think that in those days they thought it was a unilateral statement and not a conversation. And, well, and today we and have there, to accept it. We just yeah, have, I mean, to there, there wasn't really a way outside of in person for people to talk about the brand, right? You didn't, you didn't have a, a megaphone to go out and shout to the world that you do today on social media. I mean, a, a single person can make a nasty comment, a uh, nasty claim that may be grounded or not grounded in truth. And it can be within minutes, hours, days, you know, seen by millions and millions and millions yeah. of people. And it can have a drastic impact. And so, that conversation, I think, is really um, important. And it, and it means that what people say about the brand is more important. It, th this isn't, it's not what that means, but what people say about the brand is, is way more important for most people than what the brand says about itself. Yeah. So I, I, I have to ask the question, what, what, what do people say about us? What do, uh, not us. Actually, I, shouldn't, I should rephrase well, that. Well, they say you're a really nice guy and Kurt's an asshole. That's what they say. I wanted to actually, what about the behavioral grooves brand? 
I think, I mean, it's interesting because what, what do we think the Behavioral Grooves brand is? This is, uh, all right, so since having this conversation with, with Matt, it's gotten me thinking about this, right? This conversation. And again, going back to the successful branding is when consumers can see themselves reflected in the brand. So what are we reflecting? And, and who, who are groovers? Who are, who are the groovers that are out there? You know? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, that's why in the introduction, I was kind of teeing up this idea that we might just be science communicators, that yeah. we might be in the business, so to speak, <laughs> for, for not for money, but, 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 but our brand is, is about communicating good science. And you know, we're a not-for-profit science communication brand. Is that what we are? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, but I think you bring up a good point. And the, the only piece there that I would, and, and again, this is going to be more reflective by what people are saying about us as opposed to what we want to say. But I would, I, I would hope that we are also helping people not just um, understand the science, but how to apply that science to their lives. I, that that would be my my hope. That's what we're trying to do is to have these conversations with these really brilliant people and then have these grooving sessions to talk about that with the intent of not only understanding but the application of of the behavioral science. Okay, so Matt also talked about personifying the brand. Are mm -hmm. we are we personifying behavioral grooves? Are we bringing uh, what he said, uh, we need to lead with warmth, right? Warmth. Yeah. And confidence, right? So, are we doing that? Are are we bringing warmth and confidence uh, into our brand, into our conversation with with our listeners? Yeah. So, in the book, he talks about warmth and confidence from this idea that you know, again, when you personify, when you are building a relationship, what we look for in the other person, and again, what brands are personified is warmth. Are, 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 do we trust that person? Are they they have our best interest in in hand? Are they? not going to, you know, stab us in the back. And I'm hoping that behavioral grooves is, is doing that, that we're providing, you know, we're, we have the best intent and partially because we, we don't make any money on this. We're not trying to just sell you anything, right? We're not out there to get you to, to believe a certain way outside of just, we're presenting the science, we're communicating the science and hopefully giving you insights into what you can do. Now, the confidence side of things like is this idea of are we delivering on that promise? Are we are we actually giving people good science? Are we are we explaining it, communicating it in a way that is understandable and that they can that people can take action from it? I 100 percent know that we have the warmth side of this. I mean, the, the intent that we have is there and hopefully people can can hear that and, and feel that the confidence of the ability for us to ask the right questions of our brilliant guests. Sometimes, you know, we, we, hopefully we hit more than we miss, but that's, you know, what we're improving on. Yeah. It's up to our listeners to decide that. But at the, at the same time, it does make me think that, that if we are in this conversation with our listeners, with people who are listening right now, that uh, they could weigh in on, our curation, for instance, uh, like, are we curating the right group of, of guests? And I mean, we, listeners don't know this, but we turn down a lot of people. We, we say no uh, to guests for, you know, who solicit us for a variety of different reasons. I, I won't go into that now, but we do thoughtfully and intentionally curate who's going to be on, on behavioral grooves. But I don't know if we get the feedback, if we have the, the conversation to, to know if that's working the right way. Well, I don't know if we've asked. And this is this is, a, a you know, something that we learned from Matt is that we can ask. We can ask our listeners. So we're, we're making this ask right now. Like, what are what are who are the people that you would like us to, to have on the show? What are the topics that you want us to talk about? What are. And what we probably should be doing, too, is, you know, saying, hey, we're going to have, you know, guest X on the show. What questions should we ask? Because that would be, again, to this point of saying, let's let's involve you listeners out there. And we as we said in the intro, you know, I'm hoping that we're asking the questions that you would ask the people that we're interviewing, because that's kind of in the back of our heads is where we're putting these, um, you know, questions together is. Well, what would people want to know? What are some of the questions that we think, you know, our listeners are wanting to hear? But 
probably easier if we just ask them. <laughs> I love that because it would make our job coming up with the questions a lot easier. <laughs> so you're going at it from this way of, oh, let's just take some of the work out of our hands and push it onto our listeners. I was thinking about, yeah, all right, I get that. But I, but I think it's also important that, you know, maybe even, you know, we can we can experiment with. I mean, one of the things that I love about us is that we are not afraid to try new things. That's Many of the times they fail. Right. Um, but many of the times they, they actually show up and they're 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 OK. And maybe we get a listener to, you know, get on the air and ask a question when we're when we're talking with some of these people and we can, you know, have a call in and say, hey, we have Joe online. Joe wants to ask you, Gary Latham, <laughs> about this or whatever it would be. So hi, I'm Joe from Pasadena. And I Hi, Joe from Pasadena. <laughs> What's your question today, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think we've taken this to about as far as we can we can take it, and that should wrap up this episode. I think I don't know, but I think we've identified a lot here. Uh, like, and I know that we focused a little bit on us, right, the Behavior Groups brand, but I hope that was informative and maybe it, it will help our listeners understand what we we're um, trying to do. And we hope that we get something that uh, that people get something out of this, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm not going to miss the opportunity just to double down on the idea that it is all about us. Because <laughs> <laughs> you want to take the work off of our hands and get the oh. listeners to ask the questions. I get that. All right. Yeah. But seriously, listeners, if you have a suggestion for who we should have on a podcast or or if you have a conduit to bring insights on behavioral science to, you know, to anyone's life, reach out to us. You know, we'd love to hear from you. Just tell us what we can do to make behavioral grooves a better experience and a re an experience that is reflective of who you are. That, that oh, I, I love that. And remember, if you like this and found it valuable, no need to send money. All right. This is a not-for-profit, you know, uh, podcast here. But but we would love if you just share this with a friend, interact mm -hmm. with us on social media, tell us who we should have or some questions that we should be asking or a topic we should cover or leave a review. Oh, my God, they could, people could leave a review. All of those are no cost ways that you can help us out. And look at that. It's all back about us. Why is it always about us, Tim? It's always about us. Well, we hope you take these insights from our conversation with Matt and this grooving session. And we hope that you go out this week and find your branding groove. <laughs> <laughs>